Hey, this is Jonathan with Limitless Mindset, and this is my book review of Tools of Titan by Tim Ferriss. And this is a 700 plus $16 book. It's really thorough, and it's kind of like a summarization of the plus 200 podcast interviews that Tim has done with really imminent, really knowledgeable, really fascinating people over the years where he's sharing the, the tools of the Titans, right? And I'm here today in Istanbul, Turkey. It's a little bit chilly, a little bit wet. I have lived a Tim Ferriss kind of lifestyle for about five years now. And in this in this review, it's a little bit longer because it's going to be it's going to be a bit more than a review. Actually, what I'm going to do is go through some of my very favorite passages of the book and share experiences and insights that I have. That whether you're reading this book, whether you've listened to the podcast, I think we'll we'll add some more depth to some of the best parts of this book. You may be thinking, I don't need to buy this $16 book. I'll just listen to the podcasts, which are, of course, free to download. Well, as I explained in the High Leverage Information Diet, podcasts are actually a pretty mediocre medium for information consumption. With listening to podcasts, your listening comprehension is pretty low because you're almost always doing something else at the same time. Commuting, working at the gym, etc. With reading, the only thing you are doing is reading. Your attention is not divided. Reading really is one of the better ways to absorb knowledge. This is why wealthy, successful people are consistent really really well-read individuals. With reading, you can meter your absorption of the knowledge. You can speed read sections on stuff you already understand pretty well, or you can really take your time on something totally new you want to understand. Tim's interviews are often over two hours. Some of the interviews are really technical as well. They'll spend a lot of time having a really granular discussion of weightlifting techniques or risk quantification of startup investment, for example. Also, the podcast has ads and sponsors, which aren't really annoying. Some of them are are pretty cool sponsors, as you kind of expect, but I would much rather spend $16 on a book, then listen to uh, literally like over, over a thousand different ads. I'm sure you would too. The book summarizes each interview. So it's a really a great companion to the podcast. What I've done is I've noted a couple of the chapters of the interviews that I found particularly interesting. And then I went and actually listened to those whole interviews. I would encourage you to do the same. And actually, books summarizing popular podcasts is kind of a, a trend that I'm starting to see. And I think it's a, I think it's a particularly good 
trend. And I'm even thinking about doing the same thing myself because a lot of you are not going to watch all 200 plus videos I've done and read the 400 plus articles that I've done on life hacking and biohacking. Whereas a lot of you might shell out 10 bucks for a book that really distills the best information, strategies, actionable stuff in three or 400 pages. Unsurprisingly, meditation is a really commonly discussed tactic, life hack, biohack on the Tools of Titans, on the Tim Ferriss podcast. Quote, more than 80% of the world-class performers I've interviewed have some form of daily meditation or mindfulness practice or cultivating a present state awareness that helps you to be non-reactive. And I think that's a pretty great, concise definition of mindfulness. With just note gone, we train the mind to notice that something previously experienced is no more. For example, at the end of the breath, notice that the breath is over, gone, as the sound fades away. Notice it is over, gone. At the end of a thought, notice that the thought is over, gone. At the end of an experience of emotion, it could be joy, anger, sadness, or anything else, notice it is over gone. And it's said that this is the meditation technique that you would want to use if you ever, if you're ever undergoing excruciatingly painful torture. So perhaps the next time I'm really uh, having a, a painful therapeutic massage, I'll use it. On loving kindness meditation. To increase your happiness, all you have to do is randomly wish for someone else to be happy. I tend to do a single three to five minute session at night, thinking of three people I want to be happy. Often two current friends and one old friend I haven't seen in years. This is a real intermittent meditation practice. You want to do it for just a couple of seconds every hour and it has a real antidepressant effect. And my, my personal life hack for this is that I just do my loving kindness meditation when I go to the bathroom, which is about once an hour because you know me, I drink a ton of water, tea, coffee, beverages, uh, herbal tea, etc. So I need to go about once an hour. One woman reported, happiest day in seven years. And what did it take to achieve that? It took 10 seconds of secretly wishing for two other people to be happy for eight repetitions, a total of 80 seconds of thinking a day. On men versus women, he notes that substantially more men end up doing transcendental meditation and substantially more women end up doing vipassana, which I like because it's uh, politically incorrect, saying that men and women prefer different types of meditation because our minds differ fundamentally. On a tangent, I've always kind of wished that for just a day, I could be in a woman's mind or I could uh, have a woman's life for just a day. 
and not that I'm saying that I would put on a dress and makeup and uh, a, a wig, but actually be a woman for, for just a day. And this is kind of what I imagine being in a woman's mind is like. Women are a bit more impulsive. Uh, generally, they make their decisions more emotionally than logically, right? And there's a, they're a bit more anxious about life. So that I kind of imagine that being in a woman's mind would be like uh, being pulled in 10 different directions all the time and being kind of anxious that I was gonna make a bad decision all the time and that as a result, life was gonna go badly for me. Perhaps a couple of female commenters can let me know if that's fairly accurate or if I'm way off on uh, how I imagine it's like to be in a woman's mind. The next section is on diet. Diet rule number one, avoid white starchy carbohydrates or those that can be white. This means all bread, pasta, rice, potatoes, and grains. Yes, including quinoa. Rule number two, eat the same few meals over and over again, especially for breakfast and lunch. Rule number four, don't eat fruit. Rule number five, whenever possible, measure your progress in body fat percentage, not total pounds. And rule number six is take one day off per week and go nuts. I'm a little skeptical of that last one. On cold showers, you can start with a cold water finish to showers. Simply put the last 30 to 60 seconds of your shower pure cold. I've heard about cold showers so many places now that I decided to start practicing it and added it to my coach.me dashboard. I suggest you do the same. Acro yoga is a blend of three complementary disciplines, yoga, acrobatics, and therapeutics. There's some photos somewhere on the internet floating around of me doing this with three girls in uh, an island off the coast of Panama looking quite ridiculous. On longevity. If you're over 40 and don't smoke, there's about a 70 to 80% chance you'll die from one of four diseases, heart disease, cerebrovascular disease, cancer, or, or neurodegenerative disease. There are really two pieces to longevity. The first is delaying death as long as possible by delaying the onset of chronic disease. The big four. We call that the defensive play. The second is enhancing life, the offensive play. On hacking testosterone. According to Charles Poliquin, as a rule, the best thing to increase testosterone is to lower cortisol. I'm going to repeat that because it's so important. The best thing to increase testosterone is to lower cortisol because the raw material that makes testosterone and cortisol is called pregnenolone. Under conditions of stress, your body is wired to eventually go toward the cortisol pathway. And the boner test for men. Men, if you wake up and you don't have a boner, there's a problem. Yes or no, one or zero, boner 
or no boner. On psychedelics, Jim Fadiman's opinion is that microdosing psychedelics does a far better job than the whole class of drugs that we now call cognitive enhancers. And I'm wondering what, why. I, I, I checked out this guy, I didn't find a lot of evidence for this one. Perhaps someone more experienced with psychedelic research can direct me to the research and can comment on this. It's easy to use medicine as, use the medicine, the psychedelics, as a crutch and avoid doing your own work, as the compounds themselves help in the short term as antidepressants. And the same thing sort of applies to smart drugs as well. They can become a crutch if you don't institute other habits in your life that build your discipline over time while your discipline is, shall we say, artificially enhanced with nootropics. On sleep. My go-to tranquilizer beverage is simple. Two tablespoons of apple cider vinegar. I use the Bragg brand and one tablespoon of honey. This I must try. He also recommends Yogi Soothing Caramel Bedtime Tea. 10 minutes later, I was starting to get wobbly. And then I felt like Leonardo DiCaprio in the payphone scene from The Wolf of Wall Street. In the most awkward fashion possible, I dragged my ass to the bedroom and fell asleep. He also recommends this sleep mask and it only costs $25. I, I recommend checking it out and so does Tim Ferriss. The most important feature of this mask is that it goes over your ears, not on top of them. This may seem minor, but it's a huge design improvement. It quiets things down, it doesn't irritate your ears, and it doesn't move around. And I like these sleep hacks because they're all things that a digital nomad guy like me can totally use. On waking up, the five to 10 reps done here in the morning, five to 10 reps of a, of a given exercise is not a workout. They are intended to state prime and wake me up. Getting into my body even for 30 seconds has a dramatic effect on my mood and quiets the mental chatter in the morning. Interesting. Moving on to the section on business. When deal making, ask yourself, can I trade a short term incremental gain for a potential longer term game changing upside on profit margins? So I added in that little buffer so I could give people a discount, which they love. Scott Adams on hacking expertise. But if you want something extraordinary, you have two paths. The first path is to become the best at one specific thing. And number two is to become very good within the top 25% of two or more things. You make yourself rare by combining two or more pretty goods until no one else has your mix. At least one of the skills in your mixture should involve communication, either written or verbal. And this piece of advice, I think I do a pretty good job of modeling. So I'm never going to be as knowledgeable 
of a uh, biohacker as say, uh, a PhD like Dr. Mark Ashton Smith, and I'm not going to be as compelling a lifestyle video blogger as say Tom Torero, nor am I as articulate as the philosopher Sam Harris, but I would definitely say that I'm within the top 25th percentile of competence and expertise in the three of these areas. Ask yourself, what three areas can you be, not necessarily within the top 1%, top 5%, but within that top 25% that nobody else is doing? And that is the low-hanging fruit of your personal branding potential, right? On being self-promotional. When you're the first in a new category, promote the category. Tim makes the really good point that people that are really self-promotional are annoying. And what you instead want to do is invent a category and then promote that category. I do this by advocating for biohacking tools that build cognitive capital, which are tools that improve your capacity to make money. My smart drug cabajo is something novel within this category. On work, the interesting jobs are the ones that you make up. On picking a billion dollar idea, if you had $100 million, what would you build that would have no value to others in copying? To clarify, the question is asking, if you had unlimited resources, what would you build that would put you so far ahead of the competition and everyone else that there was no point in them even catching up with you? Dwell on that question for just a moment. It's profound. Peter Diamandis on opportunity. Quote, the world's biggest problems are the world's biggest business opportunities. The third thing is when you try to go 10 times bigger versus 10% bigger, it's typically not 100 times harder, but the reward is 100 times more. On networking. Networking. BJ Novak on charity. When possible, always give the money to charity as it allows you to interact with people well above your pay grade. And I discuss this uh, much further in the secret society model to networking on productivity. To paraphrase Peter Thiel, what might you do to accomplish your 10-year goals in the next six months if you had a gun against your head? And here's Tim's eight-step uh, formula for maximizing efficiency. Number one, wake up at least one hour before you have to be at a computer screen. Email is the mind killer. Number two, make a cup of tea, I like puree, then sit down with a pen, pencil, and paper. Number three, write down the three to five things, no more, that are making you the most anxious or uncomfortable. They're often things that have been punted from one day's to-do list to the next, to the next, to the next day, to the next day, and so on. Most important usually equals the most uncomfortable with some chance of rejection or conflict. Boy, isn't that the truth. Number four. 
for each item, ask yourself, if this were the only thing I accomplished today, would I be satisfied with my day? Will moving this forward make all the other to-dos unimportant or easier to knock off later? Put another way, what if done will make all of the rest easier or irrelevant? Number five, Look only at the items you've answered yes to at least one of these questions. Block out at least two to three hours to focus on one of them for today. Let the rest of the urgent but less important stuff slide. It will be there tomorrow. Number seven, to be clear, block out uh, at least two to three hours to focus on one of them for today. This is one block of time. Cobbling together 10 minutes here and there to add up to 120 minutes does not work. No phone calls or social media allowed during that period. And number eight, finally, if you get distracted or start procrastinating, don't freak out and downward spiral. Just gently come back to your one to do. Boy, that's, that's, that's a quite robust productivity strategy, isn't it? I really hope some of you guys try that out. I know I have, and it really does help. And it makes you a bit happier too, because you spend that early part of the morning working on one thing and you're not having your attention being dragged a bunch of different ways by social media or email. There's a bunch of different productivity strategies out there, and it's really hard to say which is going to be most effective for you. You just have to try uh, a couple of them very thoroughly, and one will, one will really stick for you. I think Tim's is quite good. Noah Kagan on time management. Don't try and find time. Schedule time. This is similar to Jordan Harbinger's scheduling methodology that he talks about on the Art of Charm podcast. And there seems to be a spectrum of effective granularity with scheduling. Some people like Jordan will schedule the entire day, every day, into 15-minute chunks. They'll schedule in things like, have a meaningful conversation with my girlfriend for 15 minutes. I tried this and it was way too regimented for me. This is what I do instead. Every project and mini project I need to do is an Evernote on my computer and smartphone. In Evernote, you can schedule reminders for projects. So I will just set a to-do reminder at a specific, yet sometimes totally arbitrary time that week. In my Google Calendar, I schedule reoccurring to-dos, like on Tuesday afternoons at 2 p.m. for about an hour, I will dig into my traffic reports and income streams. Scheduling your life is important. If you're not doing it, start now. On laziness. Idleness is not just a vacation, an indulgence, or a vice. It is as indispensable to the brain as vitamin D is to the body. Scott Adams on systems versus goals. Refocus. 
to use his language on systems instead of goals. This involves choosing projects and habits that even if they result in failures in the eyes of the outside world, give you transferable skills or relationships. In other words, you choose options that allow you to inevitably succeed over time as you build assets that carry over to subsequent projects. Scott Adams on positive affirmations, something that I've been critical of in the past. You can use these affirmations, presumably, uh, this is just a hypothesis, to focus your mind and your memory on a very specific thing. And that would allow you to notice things in your environment that might have already been there. It's just that your filter was set to ignore. And then you just tune in through this memory and repetition trick until it widens a little bit to allow some extra stuff in. Now there is some science to back that. Scott Adams on problem solving with your body as opposed to your head. I'm thinking of these ideas and they're flowing through my head. I'm monitoring my body. I'm not monitoring my mind. When my body changes, I have something that other people are going to care about too. On cursing for creativity. This, this one's pretty clever. This odd technique does seem to quickly produce a slightly altered state. Try it. Write down a concise sequence of curse words that takes seven to 10 seconds to read. Then before a creative work session of some kind, read it quickly and loudly like you're casting a spell or about to go postal. I thought this life hack was hilarious. My own personal cursing sequence features Ewe puta mal parido, which is Spanish, puton mer, which is French, and billiard, which is Russian, among other expletives. On morning pages. So this is a habit that Tim advocates pretty seriously throughout the book. Basically, first thing in the morning, you free write for a few minutes in a uh, diary or notebook. And the important thing is that you actually do it with a pen and paper as opposed to uh, some sort of uh, digital device or app. And uh, that you do this before you do anything really cerebral, like something involving your laptop, your phone, uh, involving uh, problem solving, dealing with stress, etc. Quote, Morning pages don't need to solve your problems. They simply need to get them out of your head where they'll otherwise bounce around all day like a bullet ricocheting inside your skull. On evening pages, and this as you can imagine is the flip side of morning pages, where before bed you'll do some writing. What are the kinds of key things that might be constraints on a solution or might be the attributes of a solution and what are tools or assets I might have? Never go to sleep without a request to your subconscious. That was a quote by Thomas Edison and I'll add to I'll add uh, insight to the evening pages. A lot of people will say, hey, you know, I have like a blog where I get my thoughts out there for the universe. And that's 
that's pretty different than these morning pages and these evening pages. I think one of the really effective attributes of this free writing is that it's completely private. It's just for you because as soon as your as soon as you make your blog public and certainly as soon as the public starts giving you feedback on your blog or wherever you're writing or doing video blogs or wherever you're putting your thoughts out there, you start to kind of uh, censor and structure those thoughts for public consumption. And when you're actually just doing free writing on problem solving for yourself, for no one else, there's really an unfiltered nature of uh, releasing your default network, your inherent human problem solving capacity that kind of gets unlocked. So even if you do blog, even if you do have a way of, of uh, processing, of vomiting your thoughts out there for the universe like I obviously do, I'll encourage you to try doing morning pages as well. I'm saying no. If I'm not saying hell yeah about something, I say no. Number two, when you say no to most things, you leave room in your life to really throw yourself completely into that rare thing that makes you say hell yeah. On travel, so Rolf Potts on vagabonding. Vagabonding involves taking an extended time out from your normal life. It could be six weeks, four months, or even two years to travel the world on your own terms. You guys know I've been a long-term traveler myself for five years now, and I have mixed feelings on this. So I have met a lot of dumbasses who are wasting their lives doing this. Uh, Long-term travel, vagabonding, it's really kind of like Uh, a lot of things in life that if you have discipline, it's incredibly rewarding and it really is going to be a vehicle of your own personal development and evolution. But if you lack discipline, it can really be a vice and it can really be a deferred life plan to uh, borrow, to use another Tim Ferriss, phrase and I have just met a lot of undisciplined young people that could be uh, starting a career, starting a family, they could be really productive members of society but instead they're doing this this romantic wonder thing and they're just wasting their 20s which is it's uh, statistically speaking it's the most important decade of your life. They're just wasting years and years or even longer decades and decades just getting drunk and doing drugs in dodgy countries. Another uh, Ralph Potts quote that I love that captures a bit of my ethos on this topic. Vagabonding is about taking control of your circumstances instead of passively waiting for them to decide your fate. As a long-term traveler, you choose your problems as opposed to your problems choosing you. As a long-term traveler, there's constant uh, issues and challenges and things that you need to deal with. You're, You're rarely going to be comfortable. But for nearly every problem I have in my life, I can point back to a very conscious decision that I made 
to move in that direction. Very few of the problems I have are just things that happen to me. For example, recently I've been in Istanbul, Turkey, which is an increasingly theocratic Muslim country that's currently going through some real political instability, which makes it a uniquely challenging country for me to abide in. And I knew that before I went there. The kinds of challenges that the average person faces in life are kind of things like, well, my girlfriend's mom got sick, so we decided to move to Columbus so that we could take care of my girlfriend's mom and, and her parents are, are religious, so we decided to get married, you know, to appease them. And then my brother-in-law actually got me a job at a uh, factory, but then I got sick, so I had to go on disability, and now I'm taking uh, courses online while I'm on disability, so that's why I'm fat, <laughs> or, or those sort of things. Uh, most people just kind of allow life to happen to them, and being a long-term traveler really will uh, train you to be a more high-agency individual. Quote, Vagabonding has never been regulated by the fickle public definition of lifestyle. Rather, it has always been a private choice within a society that is constantly urging us to do otherwise. You'll hear people that are a little bit older say that people that are wise <laughs> say that they're thankful that they got to see the world before the internet. Uh, before this era of ubiquitous technology. And similarly, I'm glad that I got to see the world before it became culturally homogenous. There's definitely a trend towards all the diverse cultures across the world kind of morphing into a global unicultural. As a novelty junkie, I've really enjoyed experiencing the gap, the difference in between the culture of say, a place like the Ukraine and Spain. These are like two of my uh, favorite countries in the world. Yet, after I've lived in one of these countries as an American, as an outsider, as someone from a culture that is different, after like two or three months, I'll get kind of culture fatigued. I'll get kind of sick of it and then I can just get on an airplane and in a couple of hours I'll be in a place which is culturally fresh to me and the cultural difference between dating a Colombian girl and dating a Ukrainian girl is so uh, nuanced and layered it's such a kind of a, a discovery a discovery process that the inherent pleasure of finding out there is 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 equals the the enjoyment that you're going to get out of the dating itself and out of the that uh that visceral sexy relationship itself and because of the very convenience of travel and globalization that cultural novelty it's it's not quite going to be there in 10 years the people who travel the world in 10 years won't quite be able to experience it. The novel 
that they get, it, the novelty that they're able to experience is going to be limited to uh, architecture, landscapes, and accents. Next section is on personal development and why weaknesses are less important than strengths. One could argue that I should work on my reactivity instead of avoiding stocks. I'd agree on tempering reactivity, but I disagree on fixing weaknesses as a primary investment or life strategy. All of my biggest wins have come from leveraging strengths instead of fixing weaknesses on hacking mood. Another tactic for mood elevation, probably best used outside of the airport. This might sound really crazy, but I'll just look in the mirror and laugh at myself. Break down this wall of being so pretentious about not being able to be silly. I think there's a great power in not taking things so seriously. And I've used a similar biohack where I'll go in a bathroom alone and for about two minutes, I will just pretend to be an ape. I call it aping. <laughs> I, I really hope you try it. It really will put you in, in a better mood. Here's a really profound quote you've probably heard before. A person's success in life can be measured by the number of uncomfortable conversations he or she is willing to have. This is why I created the gut react habit in coach.me. Anytime something is uh, uncomfortable, you're gonna have this heuristic gut reaction to it, and that's your sign to do it. Check out that video as I go more in depth into this. Naval Ravikant on happiness. If you don't believe in an afterlife, then you should realize that this is such a short and precious life. It really is important that you don't spend it unhappy. A theme that's common throughout Tim's books is that reality is largely negotiable. I'll rearticulate this by saying that life is one big shit test. Pickup artists talk a lot about shit testing, or to give it a nicer name, congruence testing. And this is when you are trying to seduce a woman and she's going to be a bit challenging, she's going to be kind of illogical, she's going to be kind of dramatic. And the correct response to this is just to keep doing what you're doing. And any man who has much experience seducing women knows that if you stay congruent with your actions and with your intentions, despite these, these, the little bit of tests, that you stand a much, much better chance of sleeping with the woman. Consensually, of course. And uh, got a great example of this. Not long ago in Thessaloniki, Greece, I had bought, bought a bus ticket and I showed up at the bus station on time and was informed that I did not have a ticket, that I had paid for it, but I did not actually have a, a seat on the bus and that I was out of luck. And what I did was I just kept being assertive, relatively, relatively respectful, but assertive and telling them, hey, I've got a bus ticket and I would like to leave please figure this out for me. And after about 15 minutes of me being 
assertive. They were like, hey, we found you a spot and I was able to leave. And I thought to myself, wow, it's true. Life really is just one big shit test. Sparta, Rome, the Knights of Europe, the Samurai, all worshiped strength. Because it is strength that makes all other values possible. If you are depressed, you're living in the past. If you're anxious, you're living in the future. If you are at peace, you're living in the present, Lao Tzu. Any useful statement about the future at first will seem ridiculous. That's what Jim Detour said. Dealing with the temporary frustration of not making progress is an integral part of the path toward excellence. Peter Thiel on failure. I think failure is massively overrated. Peter Thiel on the fundamental philosophical question. What do people agree on merely by convention? And what is the truth? Demon John on money. Money is a great servant, but a horrible master. On political correctness. Consensus is how we bully people into pretending that there's nothing to see. Those who are offended easily should be offended more often. May West. Bigoteer. This is a phrase that Tim Ferriss invented. It means a person who implies other people are bigots. For personal gain, of course. This is a great new word. Uh, let's not be afraid of calling out people for being bigoteers on the internet if you follow me on Twitter. You'll see me doing this. Uh, check out hashtag bigoteer. On history, all you need to know is from World War II. I agree. I think World War II is the most interesting episode of history. I'm always up to watch another documentary about World War II. I think World War II is so interesting because it illustrates the power of philosophically shoddy ideas deployed at scale. For example, you take like nationalism, which is, you know, like being proud of your country, wanting to defend your country, not that bad of an idea. Uh, you take socialism, which as an idea is, you know, being like uh, kind of sharing, be, be sharing things, being a bit more of a compassionate society that tries to take care of the less fortunate, not that bad of an idea. But you combine them together and you scale them up by a country of 70 million people, by extreme trauma of World War I, of, uh, by fiat banking that infuses a wartime economy with billions and billions of dollars and you get Nazism and you get one of the very most morbid episodes in human history. Sam Harris on long-term thinking. To worry about the fate of civilization in the abstract is harder than worrying about what sorts of experiences your children are going to have in the future. This is why you may have heard people say that people who don't have kids should not have the right to vote. And I actually totally agree with this. And I would give up my right to vote if all other Americans who didn't have kids also didn't have the right to vote. I'm, I'm, sure, you'll, I'm sure you'll let me know in the comments if you agree. 
I'll end this lengthy book review with Tim Ferriss's interview question that most grabbed my attention, which is, what do you think that other people believe is insane? And this is actually kind of similar to one of my favorite first date questions, which is, how are you crazy? My answer to Tim's question would be that I think everything's gonna be okay. I'm a red pill kind of guy that really likes to be aware of all the problems that the world and society has. I prefer to have a really clear vantage point where I can really see all the ugliness and monstrous dysfunctionality of the world. But at the same time, I see all of these exponential positive trends that are vanquishing the demons that have been tormenting humanity since time immemorial. So I really do think that despite all of the human craziness, despite the environmental problems, despite all the geopolitical instability, despite all the evil corporations out there that are doing bad things, despite all the corrupt politicians that are creating these systems to entrench uh, these uh, philosophically shoddy ideas that we see manifesting in government and society, I think that everything's gonna be okay. I think that human ingenuity and technology will overcome and eventually we'll reach that Star Trek utopia. Let me know in the comments what your answer is to Tim's interview question. What do you think that everyone else thinks is insane? Again, I'm Jonathan with Limitless Mindset, and I hope you'll hit the subscribe button. This review is perhaps a little bit of a deviation from my usual content because I got pretty far into the weeds of the abstract with some of the sections of this book, but I really did enjoy this book. I think you will too. I hope that you'll purchase it through the links below and let me know what you think of it and let me know what you think of some of these life hacks and biohacks that I outlined. I look forward to a continued conversation with you.